Um, about 15 years ago when I was uh, pastoring down in Athens, Georgia, there was a young man that came to me and he started reading his Bible. And he believed uh, when he read, he was reading in his Bible and he saw the word predestination for the very first time. And he says, wow, I've been going to church all my life and I never saw it. Oh, is there anybody that actually believes this? And he looked me up and saw what he believed and we had several meetings together, but he took it too far. He went to what people sometimes call absolutism or double predestination. And we had discussions and I was sharing with him that I think he's gone too far with that concept. And as we did, he was just saying, oh, that's just logic. And it absolutely floored me because he thought it was terrible and I thought it was what I was required to do. So how do you witness to someone when you're used to using logic and they disrespect logic? And that's our culture right now. So I've gone something, I've gone really out on a limb this week and I read, of all people, Aristotle, okay? No one fainted. That's a good thing. But what I'd like to do is just use that. Aristotle's got no um, authority here in our church, but he talked a little bit about rhetoric and persuasion, and I think that outline will help form the outline that I would like to discuss Scripture with. Again, this is not truth. It's, it's what he said. So basically... I've got a book here, and it was written on rhetoric. It's been interpreted. I can't read Greek. Someone interpreted it for me, so I'm going based on some of this. But I do know our, 40, found, our founding fathers of our country were well-read in the classics, including Aristotle. And a lot of the things he said was used to set up this country. And these things will sound pretty evident to you once I get there. But rhetoric basically is the art of persuasion. And he said, really, there's three ways to persuade. One way to persuade is based on the character of the speaker, kind of like an expert witness. Uh, he's a pro at this, so he must know what he's talking about, so we're going to believe him. That's number one. Number two is you want to try to put the audience in a certain frame of mind. You want to try to create an emotion that makes your argument more palatable. And the third way to persuade someone is use words with facts and logic and it's kind of like a proof. Okay, Y'all know me with my background. I'm a number three guy, right? Matter of fact, I, always, I actually think I'm cheating when I use number one and two. No, I, I really, I, I do. But, but, but how do I, and, and in the culture we live, one and two are very important. And it's almost as if feelings and emotions usurp facts and logic. That's just the way our society is going, which is completely contrary to the way I'm supposed to interpret Scripture. So how do I break through someone when I go into automatic pilot and I start using Scripture and facts and logic, and they go, oh, that's just logic. I feel this, therefore it must be true. Get away. How do I break through that? So, so that's where I'm going today. So what I'd like to do is I want to show you a couple examples of Scripture of each, a good use and a poor use. 
just to try to show you that we're not here preaching Aristotle. We're really preaching, still preaching scripture. It's just that framework of his three arguments was very useful for me to try to get my arms around this subject. Okay. Um, Let me, let me go at it this way. Okay. You've heard this a hundred times. One of my favorite sermons is 46 past tense verbs, right? And you go, oh yeah, I've heard that before, right? And what I've tried to share with you is, is, is you want to stop and you want to listen to the person you're talking to. And if I'm talking to someone like an accountant, I might want to use the word reconciled. I guarantee you, someone that's not Bible read, don't use justification, propitiation, sanctification. It's going to mean nothing to them. It's like going to be 1 Corinthians 14, talking in tongues. Those five, six syllable words, they're not going to do anything for them. But if I'm talking to someone in health, I might want to use healed. Or if I'm talking about someone in law, I might use pardoned. Or if I'm talking to a computer programmer, I might use purged. If I'm talking to a homemaker, I might use washed. If I'm talking to a little four-year-old little girl, I might use put away. She knows how to put away her toys. Right? So when I'm talking to someone in our current culture that's been raided in the secular one, it's almost like I want a 47th past tense verb. I want a woke verb. Yes. But then I thought about it. How do you talk about a savior to someone that doesn't believe in sin? What is the need for a savior if that's not a sin? Do you understand? This is what we're facing. And I believe God's people are among all people, even our woke folks. So I got to humble myself and somehow I got to figure out a way to use the emotion, but I want to use it in a way to touch them, but I don't want to use the emotion in a way to establish truth. That's a hard thing. But you know what? If I want to love them, that's what I'm going to have to do. All right? Okay. So here's an example. I just, uh, this is, using expert witnesses isn't always bad, but you can use it poorly and you can use it in a good way. Here's two examples. In John 18, 28 through 30, the Jews were trying to have Jesus executed and they went to Pilate. And, and they were, they were trying really, really hard. And basically what they said is Jesus, the Jews said, Pilate says, what did this guy do? Why do you want him dead? And the Jews says, if he were not a malefactor, we would not have delivered him up to thee. In other words, we know you don't need the details, just trust us. That's the modern culture, isn't it? No, I want to know the reason why. So that's an example of authority used in a wrong way. But there's a possible to use authority in a correct way. And we can find that in Luke 16, 31. Abraham said unto the rich man, If they hear not Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, though one rose from the dead. In other words, if you don't believe scripture, you're not going to believe this preacher and what I say about the resurrection. Do you understand? But that's a good thing. That is my authority. That's a good way to use it. It's an absolute. 
But how do you do when you're talking to someone that doesn't believe in an absolute? Okay? All right. Let's go down. Let's talk an example of the second type of persuasion. Okay. That's getting people in a frame of mind. Here's an example of a poor usage. So the Jews are having this interaction with Pilate, and, and, and um, Pilate is basically coming to the conclusion because he's basing it all on facts, and the Jews are panicking. Facts aren't enough. Pilate's saying, this guy's innocent. He hadn't, he hadn't done anything wrong. So what they're doing is they're going, well, you don't trust my authority. Let's go on to number two, or type of persuasion number two. John 19, 12, Jewish leaders said to Pilate, if thou let this man go, thou art not Caesar's friend. Whosoever maketh him a king speaketh against Caesar. In other words, he's trying to get him in a frame of mind, putting political correctness on him, right? Here's an example of a good use, a godly use. Paul used it in Romans 8, 16. Paul to the Roman church members, he said, I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. He was trying to get these members to understand that, hey, this life is a rough road, but I want you to take a step back and look at the perspective of heaven, and with that, you can handle these bumps in the road. So that's a good use of it. Amen? Okay, so, so maybe when I use one and two, I don't have to take a shower after I'm done. I mean, I just, I just don't like it. I go, ooh, right? It's just not my nature. But forget my nature. I got to use what I got to do. You all talk to someone where they're trying to make a decision and you're given facts and you know they are not paying attention to their facts. Their mind's already made up. So you got to take a different route. You just don't pile more facts on them, right? Okay, the third one. Here's a third one. Here's a woke, here's one that was used incorrectly. In Genesis 27, Rebecca succeeded in fooling Isaac's senses. You remember she fooled his sense of taste and smell and touch? Remember that? He, he, he got the, uh, the goat. No, was it goats? Yeah, he got goats, right? He got goats and spiced it all up and cooked it savory meat and tried to disguise it and make it taste like venison. What he did is he took the pelt and put it on there and got his hands furry and, and tried to make them fuzzy like Esau. And then what he did is he stole one of his garments and he put it on him. So when he came up and he hugged his necks, he smelled him. He said, that smells like he saw what he was doing. He was trying to fool with the proof, the facts. That's a wrong use. But here's a good use. In Acts 1-3, talking about Jesus Christ, Jesus showed himself alive. Remember, after he rose from the dead, he was on earth for 40 days. And it says he showed himself alive by many infallible proofs, being seen of them for 40 days. That's a good use. So all of these are tools that could be used for good or for bad. So that makes a little more sense. Okay, so we've defined our terms now. Even though I'm using Aristotle's rhetoric and his three forms of persuasion as an outline, I think we have scripture to prove that those can be used for good and for bad. Okay, the art of persuasion. Okay, we got these. I want to do over here the dilemma is this is what this is what the whole message is for how does one who values facts and logic speak to one who does not value facts and logic how do you do that okay number two how does one use feelings and emotions to break through crustiness or callousness but not do it in a way to use it to establish truth 
These are hard things. But if we're going to share Jesus Christ in today's culture, I think this is pretty important. And you know what? Whether you realize it or not, these temperaments is snuck into the church even among Christians because it's our culture. So you're going to see this even in church, folks. And then finally, how do I persuade person of how do I persuade a person of their need for a savior when they do not believe in sin? Yeah, that's a mm, how do you do that? There's a way. There's a way. It's going to take time, but there's a way. All right? So, with that being said, let's go to my first example. Okay? Now, the first example, let me set this up. If you're going in your Bibles, go to 2 Samuel chapter 12 and I'm going to start reading at verse 1. This is a case where David got to a place where he was pretty hard-hearted. No, he, he was a child of God. He was a man after God's own heart. But what happened was, is he lusted after a woman, committed adultery with him in the cover-up scheme when he found out that she was pregnant, had her husband killed. By the way, the husband was one of his mighty men. Do you understand how calloused he was? One of his most loyal, faithful, mighty men. And he had him killed. So Nathan says, you know what? If I go home and confront him, I might get killed. So he didn't take number three and lay scripture on him right out of the chute. He went to number two. He set up a scenario. And you know what he's going to do? He's talking to a shepherd about a sheep. You know, talking about getting a guy's wheelhouse. That's exactly what he's doing. Okay? Let's read the account. Second Samuel 12, verse 1. And the Lord sent Nathan unto David, and he came unto him and said unto him, There were two men in one city, one rich, the other poor. The rich man had exceeding many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing save one little ewe lamb, which he had bought and nourished up, and it grew up together with him and with his children, and did eat with his own meat, and drank his own cup, and lay in his bosom, and was unto him as a daughter. Verse 4. And there came a traveler unto the rich man, and he spared to take his own flock of his own herd to dress for the wayfaring man that was come unto him, but took the poor man's lamb and dressed it for the man that was come. And David's anger was greatly kindled against the man. Do you realize what Nathan just did? How much scripture did he use here? None. What's he doing? He's getting him in a frame of mind to see a practical reality, right? He's setting up David hook, line, and sinker. You understand that? He's he's, he's not even going to have to preach to him. He's doing such a good job of getting him in the right frame of mind. He's not going to use this story to establish truth. He's just using it to get in the right frame of mind. So once again, maybe this approach is okay. okay. Verse 5, And David's anger was greatly kindled against the man. And he said to Nathan, As the Lord liveth, the man that hath done this thing shall surely die. And he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. Oh boy, David, right? And we know how this story goes. And we go to verse 7, and Nathan says, 
thou art the man. And then he starts giving him the facts. And he says, God is Lord of Israel. He chose you to make you king. What you did was wrong. But you know what? I'm not going to kill you. But some bad things are going to happen. And you know what? David didn't resist one single bit. Why? Because Nathan was smart and he used an approach. God was inspiring him to do it. He used an approach that pricked his heart. We had David in a situation where he stopped being the good king. He stayed home one night. Instead of, he went up on a housetop, he was walking around, he saw a woman taking a bath. Instead of turning his head, he stared. His admirer turned to desire. He went and called for her, went unto them, sent her back home. Word came back, pregnant. I mean, do you understand how many of the Ten Commandments he's breaking right now? With the eyes, and the lusting, the coveting. I mean, it just keeps on going. And we know how he had the husband killed. David got to a place where he was in a very callous place. Well, that's kind of our job. Now listen, don't get me wrong. I think you've heard me preach through these basics at the beginning of this year. When we share the gospel, when we share God's word, we are assuming God has already worked first. If that is a cold heart and there's a rock underneath it, you can preach all you want and nothing's going to happen. But you know what? I can't tell the difference. So I try everybody. But at the same time, my goal with a story like this would be to break through the callousness to maybe if something that I say, because I do believe when a child of God is worked on by the Lord, he writes on their heart his law, and something I say will resonate that facts and that logic that the society hates that maybe fooled that child of God into thinking that's the proper way to go. If with a story I can break through that callousness and get to the place where God's written his heart, something will resonate and something will happen. Y'all, that's how we got to do it. And it may take more than your just one story to get through that callousness. It may take a couple more. And we'll get to that at the end of the sermon. But, but that's, that's the goal. Brother Dolph, that's so much harder. Yeah. But that's the day and age we live in. So if we love them, we're going to do that. Right? You know, there's part of me that says, I'm a dinosaur. I've got to go the facts and logic route, and I can't learn a new trick. Well, it's not a trick, is it? It's really a way of doing things. Okay. So with that being said, I want to show you a couple more. And, and after I show you a couple more examples, Jesus did it a couple times. What he's doing is he's creating an environment to try to get the person in a frame of mind where they can understand the truth. And he's working with Jews. These Jews are really hard-hearted. And sometimes when he tells them the story, they get really mad. And sometimes you'll tell a story, and even though you're trying to be tender and you're trying to break through the callousness and you're not going with your facts and logic, they'll get really mad. That's okay. You still try. Because you don't know. Maybe it'll do good. Or maybe you're planting a seed, and, and, and a couple months later, Brother Richard will come by and he'll put a little bit of water on it. Right? Y- y- you don't know. So, with that being said, let's go to the second one. 
This is Luke 10, Luke 10. Now, this is a case where Jesus was having an interaction with a Jewish lawyer. Now, back those days, when I say a lawyer, I'm not talking about someone with a law practice that does divorces and land and, 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 and business contracts and things like that. We're talking about someone that was studying the law of God. Okay, so that's what that lawyer is. He's an expert in the law of God. So this man and Jesus Christ is having a conversation and they're having, you know, that's what's the most important commandment and they they go through all that kind of stuff and at the very end, he gives them what's called the parable of the Good Samaritan. What Jesus Christ is doing is he's setting up a case and he's trying to get this lawyer in a frame of mind. At this point in time, he set aside the scripture they've just been talking about. He's trying to get him to a place where he's at and he's going to talk to a lawyer about a priest and a Levite. That's like Nathan talking to a shepherd about a sheep. Do you understand? Okay, that's what he's doing. In Luke 10. But he, willing to justify himself, this is the lawyer speaking, said unto Jesus, who is my neighbor? And Jesus answered, a certain man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among thieves, which stripped him of his raiment, and wounded him, and departed, leaving him half dead. Okay. I always wondered what half dead meant. Is it more than quarter dead or three quarters dead? What what was half dead? That's just the way I think. What's half dead? Verse 31. And by chance there came down a certain priest that way, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side, and likewise a Levite, when he was at the place, came and looked on him and passed by on the other side. Okay? And then we go to verse 33. But a certain Samaritan, as he journeyed, came where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion on him. And he went to him, and he bound up his wounds, pouring in oil and wine, and set him on his own beast, and brought him to an inn, and took care of him. And on the morrow, when he departed, he took out two pence, and gave them to the host, and said, Take care of him, and whatsoever thou spendest more, when I come again, I will repay. And the question was asked, Now, which of these three was neighbor unto him that fell among thieves? Do you understand what Jesus Christ did? This is not doctrinal. Matter of fact, he's using religious folks, religious leaders to set up the example. And back in those days, Samaritans were half-breeds. They were half-Jewish and half-Assyrian. Kind of like they had the cooties, what we used to say when we were little. They were off-limits. And Jesus tells this story of, of, of a man that comes and he won't even cross the street to look at him. Second man comes up and he crosses the street, looks and says, boy, that's going to hurt tomorrow morning. And he just keeps on going. And the third guy comes and he does that. Listen, this is a type of story Jesus used to prick this man. Now, you can use this in many situations. You can use it in a political situation. You can use it in a woke situation. But don't do this right out of the chute. Do it after you've listened. You see where they're coming from. You build up a rapport. You got some kind of credibility with them. And then you can challenge them. 
So this is the kind of thing. So in the opportunities I have, I guarantee you in my first conversation, I'm not doing this because I don't know how to do it. I don't know where they're coming from. I've got to listen a whole lot before I bear down. But you know what? There comes a time where I will have to bear down. And this is the approach that's very profitable to do so. Isn't that hard? Yeah. Okay, let's go to the next one. Last one, and then I want to get to you and I. Matthew 21, this is also Jesus Christ. Verse 28, But what think ye? A certain man had two sons, and he came to the first and said, Son, go to work um, today in my vineyard. Now, he's talking to a man, and I suspect, I don't know, this is just speculation. But I'm suspecting this guy probably was either part of her family or had a family. Okay? I know if I was telling a story to a man that had three daughters, I'd probably tell the story with three daughters or two daughters. If I had a man that had a couple sons, I'd probably tell the story with sons. You know what you do? You, you look and you're trying to touch that heart. You're trying to set up a scenario they can relate to. I'm guessing this man probably was very familiar with family situations. Got a good friend, Royce Beale. He's a preacher down in Atlanta proper. And he lives in a section of um, Atlanta that is very Latino populated. And he'll go down and he'll share and he understands the Latino culture is very family oriented. So when he talks about Christ, you know what he talks about Christ? He talks about God as a father and he talks about Christ as a brother, and he relates to the folks in his neighborhood that. Why? Because that's the culture that they relate to. Do you understand? And he builds up this rapport, and he does it. But sooner or later, he bears down. So he's using the, the story or the situation to touch the heart, to get through the culture, to get through the callousness. And what he's doing, he's going to do that, but then the facts get laid out and let it resonate. Okay, so I think you're familiar with the story. He had two sons, and one of them said, I will not work for you, Dad. And then he gets guilty, and a couple hours later, he goes and he does the job Dad asked him to do. And there's another son, and he says, go to work. And he says, okay, Dad, but he just doesn't go. And then he asks the question, which did the will of the father? The one with the mouth words? or the one with the actions behind it. See, when you tell a story like that, all of a sudden you've set a scenario or you set a, a, a stage where you don't have to preach. And confronting is not fun, but sometimes you have to do it. But I'm not using the story to do the confrontation. Scripture comes after that. Okay, so he asked the question, which of the twain did the will of his father? And of course, that was the one that did it. Not just spoke it, it's the one that actually did it. Okay? All right, you ready? So, I got seven qualities. That's a lot. But they all are just absolutely common sense, I believe. How does a Christian, someone that believes in God's absolute word, that believes in logic. Jesus Christ is logos, logic. That's where it came from. How does someone that is founded in that, 
witness to someone that doesn't put any stock in absolute truth or in logic and puts forth in feelings. How do you do that? Number one, you show them kindness. That's not rocket science, is it? Three references. 1 Corinthians 8.1 Knowledge puffeth up, but charity edifieth. Somehow charity is going to build them up. Okay? 1 Corinthians 13.1 Though I speak with the tongues of angels and have not charity, I am sounding brass. I might be eloquent. I might have all the five-letter words down. I might be very <coughs> articulate in my proofs. But if there's charity in the speech, it's not going to do any good. And then finally, number three, 3 John 5, 6. I've been talking to him about lately. Uh, Gaius, he's the preacher there. It says, which have borne witness of thy charity before the church. This was to stranger and the brethren. There was people that was watching this guy, and this guy cared. I guarantee if you don't show that you care, you're not going to penetrate it. Okay? So how do we witness? First of all, you show them love. Number two, consistency. You know what? They're going to be watching you. Amen? Okay, let's suppose you're in a neighborhood. If you're in a neighborhood and you're living in a neighborhood and you got neighbors on both sides of you and they're, let's say, in this, they've been secularized. Is that a word, secularized? Okay, but, but, but that culture has gotten to them. You know, they're watching you. They're watching you. If you're at work, they're watching you. They're watching you. Do you blow up? Do you lose your patience? Are you honest? Are, are your words truthful? They're watching you. Second Thessalonians 3, 9, to make ourselves an ensample unto you. 1 Timothy 4.16, continuing in them, this is the word of God, and thou shalt save thyself and them that hear thee. And then finally, Titus 2.7, in all things showing thyself a pattern of good works. So how are you going to impress a old person? By a walk with integrity. Okay? And you know what? Sometimes that takes a while. See, Brother Dolph, I just want a pill. I just want to give a pill to this person that's thinking woke and let it fix them. This stuff sounds like a lot of work. You know what? It is a lot of work. Okay? Number three, listen. This is a hard one. Proverbs 18, 13. He that saith a matter before he heareth it is a folly and a shame to him. Let him finish their sentences. Let him finish their stories. And if you don't understand, ask some questions. Don't interrupt. John 21, 15 and 16. Notice what he says to Peter here. He says, feed my sheep and feed my lambs. How do you know the difference between a sheep and a lamb? Well, if it's an animal, you know by the size. But how do you know the difference between a sheep and a lamb when it's a person? You got to listen, right? Okay. And then James 1, 19. Let every man be swift to hear and slow to speak. See, Brother Dolph, I don't want to hear all that woke stuff. You know, somewhere in there you're going to get a clue where they're coming from. Somewhere in there you're going to get a clue of what meaning, when something meaningful to them. It could be from a good way, or it could be something negative that happened to them. Okay? 
Okay, three down, four to go. We're getting there. You knew this one was coming. Consider. You got to consider one another. You got to consider the other person too. This is the same way. I've been talking to you the whole, the whole morning. Okay. We that are strong ought to bear the infirmities of the weak. In other words, we consider their situation. 1 Corinthians 9.22, I am made all things to all men that I might by all means save some. Now again, we know the word all. All, this don't get ridiculous on me. Paul will not become a sodomite to a sodomite. Period. Boom. That's not what that means. All things that the liberty of the gospel allows me to do, that's what I'll do. Okay? All right. So how do you know what a person needs? You got to listen and you got to watch. Was the Yogi Berra? You can observe a lot by watching. Good saying. Okay? Hebrews 10.24. There it is. Let us consider one another to broke unto love and to good words. You got to get off. You know, again, like I said last week, you got that uh, wheel in the gerbil cage and it's spinning around. You know what you got to do? You got to stop the wheel, step out of a side, and look around a little bit. Okay? Number five. Pray. Hey, that might be a good idea. Before you engage the person, pray. Yes? Acts 4, 33, with great power gave the apostles witness of the resurrection of Jesus. Lord, give me power to speak to this person. No, that's just for preachers. Uh Uh-uh, it's for one-on-ones too. Okay? It's for a father to his child. It's from a husband to a wife and vice versa. 2 Corinthians 2.12, I came to Troas to preach Christ's gospel. A door was opened unto me. Lord, this person is just loud, but I can tell they're miserable. Lord, give me that opening at a soft moment. Let me know when it is. Provide it. Give it to me. And let me have strength to walk through. Colossians 4.3, praying that God would open unto us a door of utterance. Lord, I'm willing to do this, but you got to help me. You got to help me. Because if I just go on my own, busting in there, I'm going to make a mess of things. Number six, speak. But the words you choose, let them be acceptable words. Ecclesiastes 12.10, I sought to find acceptable words, written upright, words of truth. And in this case, I'll go back to my 46 past tense verbs. If if, if one of you want to witness the gospel to maybe a grandchild of mine, and that grandchild happens to be four or five or six, don't use justification. Okay? Use put away. All of them know how to put away their toys. Doesn't mean they do it, but they know how to do it. Okay? When you put away toys, they don't get stuffed under the bed. Yeah? You understand. Acts 20.20, I have showed you and have taught you publicly and from house to house. There's some intimacy and some hospitality going on here when you talk to folks like these. Show them some kindness. Show them some hospitality. Second Corinthians 3.12, we have hope and use great plainness of speech. Think how plain the speech was from Nathan to David. Pretty amazing, wasn't it? Okay. Last one, number seven. Number seven. You got to resonate. You know what? God's got to get there first. In Romans 8.16, the Spirit itself beareth witness with our spirit 
that we are the children of God. In other words, there is something of God's in that person that when you're going through that callousness, it's going to resonate with what God put there and then something may happen. You know what? It might not happen instantaneously. It may happen later after they think about it. It may happen after another uh, uh, big fall, you know, a low moment, and then it comes back, and that's when they will call it. But God's got to be there first. It's not going to resonate with their flesh. Hebrews 10, 14 through 16, and there's a lot of verses I could have used to, to use this one. I like Romans 2, 13 through 15, but in this one it says, by one offering he hath perfected forever them that are sanctified. This is talking about what Jesus did. Whereof the Holy Ghost also is witness to us. He said, this is the covenant I will make with them after their days. I will put my laws in their heart. You might have someone that's acting very, very woke. Okay? But if God has worked in them, that law is there. And you may say something that resonates. I mean, it may take a long time to get work through. They might have layers and layers of callousness there whether it's taught or experienced or a bad family life or, or whatever the situation is, you just keep on working on that and you got to hope on the wait on the Lord. And then the last one, our 1 Corinthians one twenty four. <clears throat> to them which are called. Do you understand that? It's talking about the ones the Holy Spirit has indwelled both Jews and Gentiles and woke. I know it doesn't say that. Christ is the power and wisdom of God. Who's Christ the power to? The ones God called. And there could be some of God's called among those folks you're so frustrated with. Amen? Amen? So you try. But God's got to be first. And if they reject it... You pitch a fit and say, I'm never going to do that again. <laughs> That's what we do, isn't it? Now we try again. Lord, if it was me, if I didn't choose acceptable words, if, if, if I used acceptable words, but I've got a hypocritical walk. Lord, Lord, help me fix whatever that is. And I just don't make me be the stumble block. Let me, let, let me, this is the conclusion to the matter. Number one, God has children everywhere, even among the moke. I said that, right? Okay. Number two, it takes grace to understand grace. Even after a person has been regenerated, we trust the things we say penetrate wokeness and touch that God has already been placed there. Already talked about that, right? Number three, every person is unique with respect to their background and their exposures. So we must listen and consider before we speak. Spoke about that too, right? Number four, we might not want to initiate with facts and logic. But sooner or later, we need to conclude with it. Got it? Amen. And then finally, we might change the way we present the gospel, but we will not change the gospel. There's a difference, right? Change the way you present it, but we don't change the gospel. Praise the Lord. Thank you.